What would you say if I told you that there was a superpower that was literally within your grasp that had the ability to dramatically change situations where you are facing difficulty, times where you're trying to figure out what to do, behavioral issues with your kids, marital conflict, financial situations, problems at work. What if I told you that there was actually a superpower that the Bible talks about that you've never really understood and never really used? I want to talk about that today. When Jesus burst on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, he said something quite profound. He said, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that meant two things to the people who were listening to him. One was, Jesus offered the availability of a completely different way of living. Unlike our friends and our neighbors who seem on the outside to be doing quite well, when you skillfully pull back the curtain, when you're able to look underneath the hood and you're able to see the longitudinal patterns in their life, Jesus is calling us and saying, we don't have to be like that. We can be different. I'm offering a different way of living that is so fundamentally different and transformative that it's, you're going to have to hang with me, Jesus says. I'm offering you a life that is breaking into this world that is going to transform people one at a time. Now, the second thing that Jesus' statement meant was, To access this God life, we must repent, which meant to change our way of thinking and our behavior. That we can no longer simply mimic the patterns of thinking, the problem-solving, the go-to reactions, the, the, the processes that we use typically that we've learned from our parents, from their parents, from neighbors, from teachers, and from the culture at large. There has to be a radical shift in the way we operate. And so what I want to do is if you can please listen to me today and then actually do what Jesus said, this will work. Now, the superpower that I'm talking about is fasting. Now, to understand fasting, we have to understand that we're not talking about Lent. How many of you came from churches where, as a kid, you practiced Lent? We're on Ash Wednesday. Uh, You had uh, the the palms that were there from the year before were taken, ground up, and then they were put in in the shape of a cross on your forehead. And uh, when I first moved to the area, I did not grow up in an area that was largely Catholic or largely mainline. Um, And so I remember the very first Ash Wednesday, I showed up at a soccer meeting and there was someone in the first row that obviously had copier toner on the forehead. I was like, I need to get this guy a message. You have something on that. But this is quite a common thing in our area. And so the question is, why don't we practice Lent at CCV? I have a friend that says, you can sin however much you want, because at Brian's church, they don't practice Lent. You know what I'm saying? So you can just send however much you want. He jokes all the time about that. Why don't we do Lent? It goes to the nature of baptism and the way people have changed what the Bible teaches about baptism, which is how we came up with Lent. Look on the screen with me. 
In the early church in the first century, Jesus left roughly A.D. 33-ish, and then the last apostle we know was dead by 100 A.D., leaving us the New Testament documents. In the 27 books of the New Testament, whenever the topic of baptism is discussed, the mode, in other words, how you baptize someone, was always immersion. Immersion meant underwater. Baptizo meant to dunk underwater. And when do you do it? Do you wait? Do you do it at a certain time? No, no, no. You do it right now. You do it immediately. When we get to the second century, we know that early church historians have discovered a document called the Didache. The Didache is Greek for the teaching. Can you put that one up there, Chris? Maybe. they don't. Trust me, they don't want to look at me. Here we go. All right. So in the, in the second century... Uh, there was a document that was written by disciples of Jesus in Syria that was sort of like a how-to manual of how to be a follower of Jesus, sort of following, really, the Gospel of Matthew. But that, that document talks in that document about baptism is immersion, but also it's pouring water on someone. You're to do it immediately. Chapter 7 of the Didache, this is not in the Bible. This is 50 to 75 years later, says this. The procedure for baptizing is as follows. After all has been said, immerse in running water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. What what does running water mean? Like, uh, Like a river. And why would you say if you wanted to become a disciple of Jesus, you needed to be baptized in a river? Because Jesus was baptized in a river, right? Because you want to do it like just like Jesus did. So get baptized in a river. If no running water is available, immerse in ordinary water. What's ordinary water? Like a pond or like a big crevice that has just water in it. And then it says, this this is funny, this should be cold if possible, otherwise warm. (laughs) Why? I baptized someone in a spring-fed creek one time. It was 50 degrees. It was freezing because the river was cold, right, where Jesus was baptized. And then it formed. And then finally they're like, listen, if you can't do it in a river, and if you can't do it in in water where you can baptize them, dang it, just pour water on their head and get it over with. Pour water three times on the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so adults literally 50 to 75 years after the completion of the New Testament Gospels, there are Christians who were like, listen, it's fine, just go ahead and pour some water on their head. By the time you get to 200 AD, the beginning of the 3rd century, there was a Roman pastor by the name of Hippolytus who talked about why would you wait until someone becomes an adult? Why don't you baptize? Why don't you get them right out of the womb? That way, literally, you're taking all the decision out of it. You get them right out of the womb. In fact, it's a problem if you immerse babies. That might be seen as abusive. So let's go ahead and just, in fact, pouring a huge bucket of water on a baby's face probably is not going to fly either. So let's sprinkle some water on them, Hippolytus said. And then let's just do it not just whenever we want to. Let's do it at certain times of the year. Then in the middle of the 3rd century, there was a a pastor named Tertullian who said, wait a minute, we can't have just any ordinary Joe baptizing people. We need people who know what they're talking about. We need really ordained clergy, people who were set apart 
as pastors and trained to be pastors to do this. In fact, we're going to do it at certain times of the year, but especially at Easter. And then what happened, you closet historians, in 313 A.D.? Christianity became a legal religion, a religio ligata. It was licensed now. You could actually come out of hiding. In fact, Constantine's mother was a huge proponent for Christianity. Went to Holy Land sites, build a church there, and build one there. And so suddenly now, Christianity was a licensed religion, and people came out of the woodwork. And they wanted to get baptized. But by that time, they only baptized people on Easter Sunday. And so the question came about, how can we make sure that these people are all sincere? How would you like literally vet them? Because in the the 4th century, just like today, people will come and they'll join churches because it's a good business move. It's a networking opportunity. And it was a great opportunity to rub shoulders with people in the 4th century in power. You made money off of it. So how do you vet them? They came up with a process. Have them fast ahead of time. Have them give up stuff. But the question that they really wrestled with at this time was, how long should they fast? And so there was a monk named Tyrannius Rufinus who found an old document from a pastor And the third century, named Irenaeus, who said this. Irenaeus said, the dispute is not only about the day, but also about the actual character of the fast. Some think they ought to fast for one day, some for two, others for still more. Some make their day last 40 hours on end. Well, Tyrannius was writing in Latin for people in Rome, and when he translated this document from the Greek to Latin, he translated 40 hours into 40 days. And so the church tradition started of 40 days of fasting before they would allow you to get baptized on Easter. The tradition was now called Lent. Lent is derived from the Anglo-Saxon word Lenten, which meant spring. And so Lent became a tradition where in the spring, starting on Ash Wednesday, you would give up something for 40 days in preparation to prove that you are ready and you are sincere and you can be baptized on Easter. Let me say, there's nothing inherently wrong with practicing Lent, but there is a reason why we don't practice Lent. Let me give you three quick reasons. Number one, the Bible never mentions Lent. Literally, all of these people just made this stuff up. Literally, just made it up. Second, Jesus tells us that his followers are meant to fast in secret. The clearest discussion on fasting that Jesus gave us was in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you fast, do not look somber like the hypocrites do. Who are the hypocrites? The Pharisees. And what would the Pharisees do? They literally would walk around like moping around. What's going on? I'm fasting. This is the worst. This sucks so bad. This is like, man, what I'm doing for Jesus or God, this is I, and, and Jesus is like, 
I hate it when people do that. I hate it when people are fasting and they do it intentionally so that other people can look at them and, and be like, oh my gosh, how spiritual is she? She's amazing. She's fasting. Jesus is like, listen, when you fast, you're not like somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. No, 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 I tell you, they have received their reward in full. I tell you, when you fast, go get, put, put some oil on your face. Clean your, take a shower, you stink, come on. Don't let anybody know at all that you're fasting so that it will be, not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who was unseen. Your father who sees what you're doing in secret will reward you. Now, the other reason we don't practice Lent is because we're trying to get people to become disciples of Jesus and not disciples of an archaic church culture or of the world. Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And what Jesus taught us about fasting, doesn't, it's not even on the same planet as Lent. So that's ultimately why we don't do that. But now let's talk about fasting and the power that is available to you. So to, to get us started in that direction, I want to tell you a story. When I was in graduate school, I lost my faith in God. I, didn't, I just got to the point where I just don't believe this anymore. And I am my second year of Princeton Theological Seminary. I don't believe in the virgin birth anymore, so I didn't want to go to church at Christmas, which was super fun. I didn't, want, didn't believe in the resurrection anymore, so I didn't want to go to church at Easter, Lisa's like, I don't even know what to do about this. And I'm like, I'm training to be a pastor. Sort of like at the top of the job description is belief in God. And here I am, I have what, almost eight years invested in this educationally, and I'm like, it's too late to send out the law school applications. This is the worst, what do I do? So in the midst of all of that, I'm in Chicago with some friends at a conference. While we're there, before the trip, we had a health scare. We thought that Lisa had breast cancer. So Lisa goes and she's getting tested. So the whole time I'm sweating. Some of you have been through that. So I'm in Chicago. She, I, she, I get a note that she called the front. This is back in the days when you literally would have to get a note at the front desk. Your wife has called. So we go up to the hotel room. Guys are in the room with me. And I, I call her, and she just starts bursting out in tears. And I'm like, I start crying. I put the phone up to my chest. I said, guys, can you, can you give, us, give me some room? So they go and sit in the hallway and shut the door. And I said, so what's the news? She said, first of all, I don't have cancer. But second of all, I'm pregnant. <laughs> she's, like, she's losing it. And I start losing it. I'm like, you can't be pregnant I don't have a job. Like, like I, we have no money. Like, what in the world? Like, I don't even believe in God. What am I doing? What, what bad movie am I in right now? So catch a, catch a plane flight home. She meets me at Philadelphia International. And as the plane is descending, everybody's buckled up, the stewardesses, and have, have seated everyone. As the plane is descending... I'm rolling through my head. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe this is happening. I'm excited. 
but we literally have no money, and I don't have my act together. Like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm training to be a pastor. I don't even believe in God. What the heck is going on? Like, we just know. And this, all of a sudden, I shot up straight out of my seat. And for those of you who have had panic attacks before, the, for the very first time in my life, I'm having a panic attack. And the lady's yelling, shut up. I'm like, I can't. I'm dying. Like, what? <laughs> Leave me alone. So, side note, um, starting a podcast uh, called 21st Century Jesus, and it's launching in July, and the podcast essentially is, I want to be incredibly helpful for people. So for those of you who are on a run, you're in in the kitchen fixing dinner, whatever it is, you're stuck on 422, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about 1st Century Jesus, what he taught and how he lived, but then translate that to the 21st century, and what we're doing is we're just interviewing experts, and the whole goal is to be in, incredibly practical. In fact, what we're trying to do is tie a lot of the interviews into the series we're doing. So, like, next week we're starting a new series called Rise Up, and it's about resilience and about emotional health and what the Bible says about depression and anxiety and the effects that it has on our lives and how the questions that we have about kids. Anyway, so for the podcast... We've inter- uh, interviewed an expert on depression and asking very practical questions. What's the first thing you do? And the second thing you do, what about this? What about this? Uh, so we did that interview. We also had an interview uh, with Dr. Matthew Stanford, who's a neurologist at Baylor Medical School, who's a devout evangelical Christian. And anyway, the reason I'm bringing that up is I was talking to Dr. Stanford. I said, tell me, diagnose me right now. What was going on? I had these panic attacks for nine months. And they just kept building off of each other for nine months, one after another. He said, well, we have this thing that we, we, we call anticipatory anxiety, meaning that you didn't even experience the thing, but it's the anticipation of the thing that is causing the anxiety. We see this with people who are struggling with insomnia. Like you can't sleep, so you get anxious that you're not sleeping, which causes you to not sleep even more. And he said, what you were experiencing was anticipatory anxiety. And I said, I was in a mental loop for nine months. Now, this is the whole reason why I'm sharing the story with you. I tried to get into counseling. I tried to get medication. I just remembered there just weren't a lot of options available to me. I did the only thing that I knew I could actually do. For two and a half, almost three days, I didn't eat and I fasted. I'm like, dang it, I have nothing else. I have nothing to lose. I'm going to try fasting. And so you know what happened? I didn't eat for the first day, and you know how I felt? Like crap. It was terrible. So I was starving. I was like, this is the worst. Why do people do this? This is terrible. Why did Jesus do that? At the end of the second day, I thought to myself, I could do this for another week. I feel great. And by the end of the third day, at dinner time, when I broke the fast, the anxiety was broke. Now, for me, it was, it was sort of a, it was a mental feedback loop in my head. And for those of you, maybe you have something that's deeper or whatever, this broke it supernaturally for me. I'm telling you, it was bad. And in a matter of three days, through prayer and fasting, 
it broke it for me, and I haven't had a panic attack since that time. And what I'm saying is we do want to avail ourselves of medical or pharmacological solutions. We do want to avail ourselves of everything that we can learn from the world. All truth is God's truth. Daniel learned the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and he used it to his advantage. So it's not like we're just going to completely become Amish and turn our back on the world. But what I am saying is that, my goodness, man, some of you have some deeply rooted issues that you're trying to work through in your relationships and with people that you love, and you've tried everything else as a disciple of Jesus. You have this superpower available to you. Fasting, try it. Now, let me give you some examples of fasting. Now, fasting comes in a lot of different forms. Um, Some of you can fast from social media. Um, A better fast would be to fast from your phone altogether. Can you imagine what your life would be like if you didn't use your cell phone for three days? Three days. You turned it off. Like, the world would end. It would end. Some of you would have no idea how to get wherever you need to go without the GPS on your phone. Some of us were were born in the dark ages. We remember when you wanted to use your phone, you did it the way Jesus intended. You took this long cord to your room. And you used the rotary phone, right? You will survive. But maybe fasting could be from your phone or from social media. Some of you could fast from TV or entertainment. The point is that you dedicate yourself to prayer during the time where you would do that task. Now, the Bible only gives two examples. There are lots of different ways you can fast, but the Bible only gives two different ways. One is fasting from sex. As a hush goes across the room. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 says, Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. This is what fasting is. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, what Paul saying is that Christian couples are meant to have sex as much as needed for both people to be satisfied. But there are times when it can be helpful to mutually agree to refrain from sex to focus at a particular time on something friend of mine, Dave Stone, was a senior pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. They were going through a massive building program, one of the largest buildings in the United States at the time. A few weeks before they got into the building, Dave and his wife, Dave shared this, that he and his wife decided that they were not going to have sex for a couple weeks to get into the building so they could focus on prayer. Dave said, the opening, opening day came for the building. A lot of hoopla because it was one of the largest buildings literally in the United States. After the services, a reporter was interviewing Dave and he asked, I bet you were really looking forward to getting into the building and having your grand opening, weren't you? Dave said, you have no idea. <laughs> um, so the other kind of fast that was, that was very common among Jesus was fasting from food. 
And you can do it for one day, two day, a week. Some people have done this for two weeks. Some people have done it for a month. Jesus did it for how long? 40 days. And he lived. And you will too. Now let me give three times that you should consider fasting. Number one, fast when you need to withstand a temptation. Some of you have something coming at you right now. Some of you right now are tempted by someone of the opposite sex at work. And you're like, I know how this story is going to end if this isn't fixed. You could, you could fast and break that temptation. Jesus, led by the Spirit, went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And at the end of it, verse 11 says what? Can you show verse 11? The devil left him. Some of you have financial situations you're going through. Some of you have, are business owners. And you have business decisions that you need to make. Maybe there's a, there's a temptation to cut the corner in some way. Fasting could end that. The second thing that you could do is you could fast when you're having trouble making a decision. Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each of the churches and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. That prayer was the connection with God. Fasting cleared out the channels of miscommunication. I love, I love what Abba the Short, he's one, they call them the desert fathers. He said, when the monk's body is dried up with fasting, it lifts his soul from the depths. Fasting dries up the channels down which worldly pleasures flow. So maybe there's a decision you need to make, a decision you need to make about your kid, a decision you need to make your job, about finances. Fast. And the last time that you want to consider praying is fast when you have a friend who needs to become a Christian. I fasted for my brother-in-law for 25 years. He never knew it. I've never told him unless, hey, you're watching this. Fasted with for you for 25 years. You're welcome. Uh, so uh, didn't, it took a quarter of a century for him to become a Christian. But just periodically, I would just pray and I would fast. Never told anybody, never wanted him ever to know that I did that for him. Acts 13 says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, this was a small group of believers, that they got together and they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke in that setting and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. In other words, in that small meeting of 15, 20 people, someone felt nudged by the Holy Spirit to say, um, Paul and Barnabas, it's time for you to go off on this missionary journey. And that's how Paul went and started that effort. So that said, here's everybody's homework, okay? Everybody's homework is, this week, I want you to fast one day. For one full day, I want you to fast. Now, you choose what fasting means for you. It could be food. Could be all the different options we talked about, but for one full day, you're going to devote yourself to fasting. During the time where you would practice that activity, pulling out your phone, doing whatever it is that you're not going to do, you're going to pray. 
the fasting will bring the acuteness, the sensitivity, that your receptors spiritually will open up. And you'll begin to see and to hear things that you normally never would have. You can't tell anybody and you want to focus on Scripture while you're doing it. I promise you, if you do that, you will experience something supernatural. I can make that promise because it's not my promise. It's His promise. Let's pray. God, lots of problems being faced in this room. Lots of anxiety, a lot of worry. We're told to give that to you, but we often struggle with how do we actually give that to you as we fast this week and pray. God, help us to feel the burden lifted and help us to hear your voice like never before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Brian Jones Sermons. For more information and to find similar articles on this topic and more, please go to Brian's website at brianjones.com.